Hey everyone, it's Maurice. If you've been listening to the show and you like what you hear, you can become a patron of Revision Path today. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and you can join at the $5 level to get behind the scenes exclusive access on upcoming interviews, new articles, and episodes of our special patrons only podcast. Join at the new $20 level and you'll get everything at the $5 level plus a free Revision Path logo enamel pin plus a swag pack full of goodies. So check it out today, patreon.com forward slash revision path. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. One thing that I love asking guests on the show is what advice they would give to an up-and-coming designer. When I talked with product designer Steven Song, I asked him what's the best advice he's been given about design. Um, my design mentor told me an interesting phrase, who is not seen is not remembered. And that's really important because in a lot of like meetings where people are talking about the code or about the product or where the team should be heading in the future, like you know, making sure that you always have like a seat at the table and you, you always kind of show up and make sure people know who you are so that you can get your voice represented inside of the team is super important. And I think that's one of the biggest things that helps me feel more confident in what I know as a designer and how I can share that with others. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Are you looking to hire someone for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Glitch is looking for the following positions. A full stack engineer, a front end developer, and a community health engineer. These positions are for their NYC office, but remote candidates are welcome to apply. If you're looking to diversify your design or dev teams, post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you through our podcast and our weekly job alerts. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. I'm talking cutting-edge VR experiences, smart bots, uh, there's useful tools to solve problems at work, there's even apps that help advance important causes. I mean, you name it, you can probably find it on Glitch. People have built over a million projects on there for you to discover, with new ones popping up every single day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. By the way, did you check out their new rebranding with the bold yellow, with the new graphic illustrations and the new typefaces? I think it's pretty dope. 
But I think what's even better about MailChimp is that they make innovative and beautiful products that serve millions of customers around the world. And they give you the tools and the resources that you need to find your people, grow your business, and make smarter choices. I mean, whether you're a freelancer or you're working in-house somewhere, even if you just want to send out a little personal newsletter to people, MailChimp is really the tool that you can use for that. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to artist and design strategist Leah Gilliam. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Sure, my name is Leah Gilliam. I'm an artist who works with technology, and I'm also a design strategist. I do a lot of work with nonprofits and help them think about what to do next, how to grow, and particularly how to do those things through technology products. Now, I think one of the, the nonprofits that we probably know of you the most from is Girls Who Code, right? Yeah, I've just recently wrapped up some big projects with Girls Who Code and had a really great time there and love that organization deeply. And I ran their education strategy and innovation teams, uh, launched a few products there and really helped them with their strategic plan and thinking about what they do in the next five years, which is all, that's my wheelhouse. That's the kind of stuff I love to do. And then mm -hmm. I was Really honored to be a spokesperson for the organization and out on the road. When you couldn't get the CEO, Reshma Sanjani, uh, to appear, I was usually second up and helping people to really specifically get a sense of what it means to be, you know, a female identified person who codes. Like, what does it really mean to learn and to code and to tackle CS and to really help people understand what some of the challenges are, but also what some of the opportunities are as well. That's really great. I feel like certainly within the past maybe 10 years or so, we've started to see this uptick in a lot of these similar types of programs. You know, we have Girls Who Code, Girl Develop It, Black Girls yep. Code, et cetera, where it's empowering more young women to get into computer science and coding and I guess design ostensibly, mm -hmm. but getting into the those kind of fields to let them know that it's a viable career option for them. Yeah, yeah, and don't forget All Star Code, which oh, yeah, is focused on, on yeah on young men of color, which I I love their work as well. No, <laughs> it's true. I mean, it, it's been interesting. You know, certainly over my career, I've been involved with a few different tech fields. So I've worked in game design, and I've you know worked in more sort of digital media and you know kind of internet open source technology, and now really thinking, in some ways, it's about how you learn to be a computational thinker. Like, what does it mean to, you not necessarily to study computer science, because that's a very specific discipline, but what does it mean to code and to sort of grapple with some of those ideas? And, you know, I think one of the big innovations in the space has been understanding the importance of really having targeted, comfortable pro spaces where where girls or people of color where groups feel really feel uncomfortable and embraced and understood that those empowering spaces are really important. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I have to kind of give a shameless plug here for my employer. So I work for Glitch. I don't know if you're familiar with Glitch. Yes, I am familiar with Glitch. I didn't oh, know that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I work oh, for Glitch. Cool. Yeah, we're trying to kind of build that same type of friendly, you know, community, but it's online and it's around this tool where you can make websites and apps and collaborate with others and try out different apps and things like that. So, yeah. 
And that was a lot of the work that I did when I was at the Mozilla Foundation specifically, like really helping to think about how to broaden understanding and access to the internet. So those kinds of online, like how do you just get people hacking and thinking about code becomes really important. So what is a a typical day like for you these days? I would imagine kind of doing this design strategy work, there's probably no two days that are the same. Yeah, right now I am in a really unique and super lucky position because I'm on a little sabbatical from advising other people and focusing on my studio work and this never happens. So I'm, I'm really, (laughs) I'm really enjoying it. And I've been on the road a bit kind of talking and doing a few speaking gigs, but really not working, not working that much with nonprofits. So, you know, one of the things that's really important for me in, in addition to working with others is also really making time for my own practice. And what I've learned in the past 10 years, working with really ambitious nonprofits with great uplifting missions, is that that can be depleting for a creative person. You have to really make sure you take time to take care of yourself and to manage yourself as well. So Mm -hmm. a typical day, I would say when I'm kind of at work, really a wide range of activities, like often I'll be working on one or two major projects. You know, at Girls Who Code, I oversaw the innovation and sort of product team. So we were, we had a main product that we built and we had that MVP and just kept, we're kind of watching it and seeing how our users were responding to it. And so that was just kind of high-level product development, as as most people know it. But also at Girls Who Code, I was part of the senior leadership team. So I was really helping to oversee the day-to-day of the organization. And so, you know, that as a creative person is another really interesting role to be in because you're thinking much more sort of, you know, systematically. You're thinking about what are the processes and structures that we're creating not only so that we're making sure that we're creating this great educational program and experience for young women, but then what's that interior experience inside the company as well? Mm-hmm. How are people doing and and what do you build to help them to thrive and survive as well? So as a designer, I was really excited to be a part of a senior leadership team in that way. And that was a new kind of a new role for me to be thinking about those internal systems and processes. I want to go back to the studio work in just a bit, but yeah, b- yeah. before that, though, I'm curious to know, how did you first kind of get into this this kind of field of design strategy? Because it, it sounds like something where it's not so much hands-on, I guess, in terms of like you're actually coding or doing technical work, but it's more of an advisory type of position, but it's also management in a way. I'm probably poorly yeah. explaining this. No, but. <laughs> no, no. I, no, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, Every few years, particularly the way, you know, the field changes, you may call the kinds of work that you do and what you specialize in something different. So right now I'm talking about it as design strategy, but certainly when I was at Girls Who Code, it was about innovation. And when I was at Mozilla, it was also a bit about innovation. And so that's also been a, you know, kind of a moniker that's that's been helpful as well. It took me a while to realize that I really like to help people with growth-oriented projects. Like once people have sort of settled in and know exactly what it is they want to do, it's much less interesting to me than when everything has to be, you know, when then that experimental moment when you've got to try a bunch of things, get out that MVP and wait to see 
which of your ideas are working. And that really came, I think, just from the the type of roles that I, you know, kind of had early on in my career. And, you know, like a lot of people, I was, you know, I was trained as a creative artist. My background is in film and film theory. And so the first kind of job I had coming out of school was teaching, but because there was really a glut of people, as there still are, who are interested in in film production, I immediately just went to what the market needed, which were people who were dealing with newer technologies. So video, computer-based media, the internet, that kind of thing. And since then, I've just been in this realm of helping people think through how to make decisions about what they work with, what they build with, how they do the next step. So it's almost like translating for people who often are trying to figure out the best way to use a new, to use new technology. Nice. I don't know. You kind of just <laughs> you opened up a few more avenues that I'm interested in now. Because <laughs> certainly as I did my research, first of all, Leah has a Wikipedia page, which blew me away because, you know, sometimes I'm doing research on people and it's like, oh, I can't really find anything. Boom, Wikipedia page. Here's Leah's filmography. (laughs) Here's all the great stuff that that Leah's done, which is wonderful. I mean, I can see that you've had this like really extensive teaching career across the arts. University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, you taught at SAIC, you taught at Bard College. When you sort of look back at that time in your life, what do you remember the most through all of that? What I loved about teaching is those kinds of really creative and intellectual conversations that you have with people. And I loved that moment of designing a class and sort of designing a conceptual pathway that you might take with a group of people who you hadn't even met yet. I loved those sort of components of teaching. Mm -hmm. What started to happen for me with teaching And I think, you know, it really depends on your discipline. It works so well for so many people. But what happened with me, because I was in the sort of wheelhouse of thinking about how you work with newer technologies, you know, at BARD, I was in a traditional film department, and then adding an electronic media and digital component to what was an existing film program. That was essentially why I took the sort of first full-time teaching job that I had, was that there were all these things outside of teaching that were really, that were interesting challenges, you know, to me. And so I soon learned that it's actually a lot of the stuff outside of the classroom, that sort of that design work, advocating for the importance of art and design within the larger educational institution, helping to design how people learn and what they learn, that those parts were really interesting for me as well. And balancing that with inside of the classroom eventually is what led me outside of academia, so it was kind of an interesting an interesting trajectory. I fully expected to be, you know, an artist who, you know, has a studio practice and then supplements that with work, you know, in the classroom, you know, as faculty somewhere, because that's certainly what I've seen so many people do. My dad's an artist. He certainly supported his practice for a while that way, too. But I, I ran up into this problem, which is that it stopped being super interesting to me. And as someone who particularly was thinking about like, hey, what are people doing with technology now? Not a billion years ago (laughs) when they were shooting 60 millimeter film, but like what's happening right now? Then you're sort of challenged to be out in the world a bit more. And for my particular role, that was hard to do. I was at a small liberal arts 
college where things were very focused on physical presence, you know, mm-hmm. on the campus and, you know, providing mentorship and support in that capacity. So I kind of did a parallel move where I I done some administrative work and thought, oh, this is so interesting that I actually like working on behalf of creative people as much as I like teaching. And in some ways, I started to find that that kind of leadership, administrative kind of work enabled me to have more creative energy for my own studio work. Mm-hmm. And that was really the sort of clincher. Nice. So I left, I, le- I left academia to get an, a second degree in design and technology just so I could really kind of focus and think about like, is this what I think it is? And that mm-hmm. sort of gave me the opportunity to dive in and sort of think more and have some more hands-on experience with what kind of stuff I actually like to do. Yeah, it sounds like it all kind of feeds into each other. You know, the educational experience and the teaching experience feeds into the strategy work, feeds into the studio art, which I guess is is a good thing. You're always pulling from like this constant well of inspiration. When you talk about it, it always sounds like it. I planned it and it just falls into place. <laughs> it always sounds so neat <laughs> when I, when I'm talking to people who are just starting out their careers, I'm like, this is not what it feels like. It's just what it looks like, you, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so I think the, you know, the fact is that like everyone right now who it may be studying something is like studying something that won't even exist by the time you hit the professional, yeah. the professional sphere, most likely. Now, does your current studio work still have that same technology focus? You know, it's interesting. The last thing that I did was a game design project and it was, It was a commission for NYU Game Center, and I was the only artist in that group who had something that was completely analog. Like I did a, like, you know, role-playing game that was face-to-face, real-time, no technology. It was about technology. It was all about imagining how technology might work, but there was actually no tech in the experience. So I don't know, the more I help other people think about what they should be doing, Uh sometimes when I have time on my own, I end up, you know, obviously still engaging with technology, but I'm not creating digital solutions or create projects right now. Okay. This real-time RPG, can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, what was that about? Sure, sure. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And it was called Lesberation, and -hmm. it was all about... Because I was running, I was commissioned to run a game that would basically run in, in one evening. It's an interesting exhibition that NYU Game Center does every year called No Quarter, and it's sort of a game expo. There are about four of us who were commissioned to do games, and I was really interested in thinking about queer spaces and specifically thinking about the kinds of spaces that we create intentionally and what, you know, utop- how utopia can often become dystopia. Mm-hmm. So I basically, I set my game on a lesbian separatist commune and made the every game table, basically the minute you sat down to participate in the game, you become a member of this lesbian separatist commune. Then there's a game runner who is a, you know, called a game dyke, and the game dyke runs the game, explains it to you, helps you understand it. And then you're basically faced with historical, some fantastical, but mostly historical issues that have faced these kinds of separatist communities over time. So you take your, you know, you're given tools and strategies. Those are sort of the cards you're given. 
and you have to use your tools and strategies to come up with solutions to whatever problem has been placed on the board and is plaguing your your commune. When it's running in a space, it's like five different tables with five different people running five different, completely different games uh-huh. and generating these these different solutions. Wow. So yeah, yeah, it was a was lot of fun. The, was that the first time that you had exhibited the game there? That was the first time I had done that version. I okay. did. I created another version of the game because these are the kind of issues that I'm just interested in. I knew it was a really unique opportunity to have, you know, this space just full of people coming in and out solely to play new games. And so mm-hmm. I thought, like, this is the way I want to handle it. Just yeah. like having running these kind of labs, <laughs> you know, essentially like live you know, fine-tuned playtesting with people for, you know, I think we ran it for four hours. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I so, just came back from, uh, from Portland, from XOXO, and they had like a, like a tabletop game arena. That was, I wouldn't say it was similar to what you're talking about, but it had this space where you could play all of these kind of experimental games and the game developers were right there. So yes. you kind of got that yeah. direct feedback on how you can improve or tweak certain things. I love that. I love that component of indie game design that you're almost always sort of looking at the game developer and, you know, giving them feedback in, you know, before it releases like the, that kind of component of game expos. I really, really like. So a little bit earlier, you talked about your father, your father's artist, Sam Gilliam. Is that kind of where your initial inspiration for getting into art came from? I mean, I think in some ways, yes, because he was very intent on having us express ourselves as kids. You know, if you picked up one pencil, he'd like shove you like 15 colored pencils and be like, yeah, yeah, keep going. Keep keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think also a lot of my interest in in design and then my interest particularly in working with other people, also really comes from my mom, because my mom is a journalist, and her first kind of gigs were covering the civil rights movement. So I always had these two really strong role models, one who was really thinking about art for art's sake, for just to be really kind of quick and efficient about it, and then another voice that was always really thinking about, well, how does this impact people, and what does this mean, and looking at things from a social, political, kind of social justice angle. So I always think that that's why I'm not just happy being, you know, on my own in the studio all week, like why I like to kind of get out there and see what's happening with with other people, not as sort of, not always a part of my art practice, but almost sort of part of my, a different kind of professional professional practice. When did you sort of have that, that aha moment that where you knew that this was what you wanted to do? I don't think I've ever gotten that question. If it came with that kind of advent of design thinking as people sort of began, you know, it's almost like that democratization of design and people mm-hmm. sort of started, everyone started thinking like, oh yeah, designers, we've got to have a designer on our team. I think that started to happen. But, you know, when I first started teaching and doing work outside of the classroom, you know, sort of thinking about how people learn and develop around technology. I think that was sort of that first kind of moment. And, you know, when I was at Bard, I had, you know, great sponsorship there. They basically were like, yeah, come here and develop our electronic media program, like help us get up to speed. It was a very traditional art you know, film art program. And they really trusted me and gave me a lot of power and 
agency. And so that kind of moment where I was in the classroom, but also thinking about how to teach people, how to teach, you know, young people the importance of, of how artists work with technology. You know, that was sort of one of those moments where I think I realized, yeah, it's not just me making, it's also there's a part of me that really likes to think about what the different systems are and how things work and to design those larger systems and, and points of entry. So it was almost like I was doing it for a while and then had to find words to to describe it. Okay. Now, with your current work, you mentioned the Lesberation game. What's kind of your creative process when you approach a new project or you have a new idea for something that you want to make? Where do you start? I usually start with reading and with research, looking at pictures, listening to music, seeing what's out in the world. I usually respond. I kind of think of myself as a reactive, responsive person. I see something and then I'm like, oh, no, that's not right. And I want to sort of redo it. Or I see something and I think, oh, my goodness, that makes me think about six million different things. And then I kind of head towards it. And it's taken me a while to kind of embrace that as part of my process, maybe because I grew up in a household in which, you know, my dad would like just go to the studio and things were kind of happening there for him. He'd read a lot of books. He'd look at a lot of images. But I found that I really, like, I need to read and do a lot of research and kind of, like, there's kind of an osmosis period mm-hmm. where I'll sort of just look and kind of and be focused on intake so that I can amass the kinds of things that I might want to, you know, kind of respond to. So sometimes it takes a while and other times I have, you know, kind of like stacks of things that I'm looking at or working on at one time. I found that when I was working in really linear formats, when I, when I was making and making film and video, everything had to sort of fit together into a perfect piece. And since I moved out of like that kind of a linear type of format, there's more room to sort of try smaller experiments and to, to like, oh, to make a collage or to make a storyboard or to instantiate something as like a role-playing game and then as something else. So it feels almost a little bit freer, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Now, something that we've, you know, kind of discussed here on Revision Path, I think for years now is sort of the concept of a black design aesthetic. Mm. Um, I'm still not sure I'm 100% sure of what it means because Partially, I think, because of so many people I've talked to, not just here in the States, but internationally as well, it's sort of this ever-changing concept. And of course, we're recording and airing this during our LGBTQ month. So I kind of want to, I guess, extend that conversation maybe a little bit further, even into identity-based design mm-hmm. as a whole. Like, yeah. for you, how do you see the concept of, and we sort of talked about this a little bit, actually, over email about like the concept of of a black design aesthetic or or a queer design aesthetic or a black queer design aesthetic like, mm-hmm. how do mm-hmm. you see these concepts like come forth I mean it's interesting I think in some ways one of the reasons why I was so interested in designing a game in which I created a space that was a lesbian separatist space you know was in part that because you 
you operate in so many different spaces in which your identity may not be welcomed or explicitly, you know, called out to, or you have to really push and verbalize and explain your point of view in order to have it represented or to have it seen. So the idea of flipping it, you know, for, for people and saying, oh, did you just sit down in that, in that chair? Well, let me explain to you the kind of space that you're in and let me tell you what the rules are mm-hmm. and have that be very specifically a queer space was really important to me and a lot of fun and just working with other people that I knew to get them to help me represent the space was really interesting. And the thing that was really funny is that most of the people, it wasn't all you know people who identified as lesbians or a lot of queer, non-binary, a lot, a lot of different people that ran different game stations for me, mm-hmm. but they knew the rules of the space and they knew how to enforce the rules of the space. And I think, you know, for some of us, it has taken a really long time for the kinds of concerns that we have as LGBTQ people to actually reach a certain level of visibility. I don't think we're nearly where, you know, we could be, but even a certain level of recognition so that people actually understand what some of these larger issues are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like, and, and I mean, I'm kind of speaking from an outsider perspective in a way, but I feel like the visibility is there, but not the recognition, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I remember a friend of mine told me this was this was a while ago. He was telling me about how queer people have always driven technological innovation. And the way that he put it was that it allowed them to connect with each other outside of a society that might have been trying to marginalize them or eliminate them altogether. Mm-hmm. So like things like chat rooms or yep. online yep. dating or streaming video right. or, or even something right. as, as simple as Polaroids yeah. being a way to drive technological innovation outside of what societal norms are, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think that certainly when I think about kind of a African diasporic approach to thinking about design, you know, there's that element of kind of bricolage and kind of of hacking, of like putting disparate things together to make, to make something work. I mean, we obviously, you know, my mom schooled me on all the black inventors when I was a kid. So like mm-hmm. I would, I knew when I was stopping at a stoplight that that was like something that a black person had invented. But I think in some ways, you know, particularly if you look at the way black communities, we you know, work and within larger constructs like Twitter or, you know, Snapchat or Instagram, we're often forced to take something that's being given to us and restructure how it's used. We're introducing sort of new new approaches. Mm-hmm. When it comes to kind of queering a space, I think it's a little bit, I think it's quite different. And I would agree with, you know, your friend's reading there, which is in some ways like that there is a component to the LGBTQ community, which is about early access, right? And having people who were trying out new technologies or developing new technologies and finding ways to connect with one another out of ingenuity and necessity, for lack of a better word, I guess. I see those as kind of distinct, you know, for me, I've always theorized those as sort of like interesting, distinct kind of approaches. I can see that, certainly. I mean, just sort of like you said, the whole concept of it being about early access, I get Mm -hmm. that. And I'm thinking of it, and this might be a stretch, and hopefully I don't get any hostile emails about this, but I'm thinking about 
the AIDS crisis in the 80s and the 90s, particularly in the 80s in particular. I had an uncle who died from AIDS. I think he was, I think this was in like the mid 90s or so. But I've certainly, you know, read and seen history about how rough the disease was for the population. Not only that, just how people had kind of, the government and the medical community kind of turned their back on gay people when it happened. And so there was a lot of experimentation with different drugs and and things of that nature to try to cure it or to at least stave it off. And I wonder if that's sort of like a cultural kind of parallel to, I don't know, I feel like I just completely messed that up. I don't know. Do you see what I'm trying to... No, no, yeah. Yeah, you're talking about, you know, the importance of visibility and the importance of, of rage and access. And I think, yeah, those are always... Those have always been huge, huge parts of the LGBTQ community is not being seen, not being recognized, or certainly there's a huge history of whitewashing, you know, particularly like around Stonewall and other movements that were really led by people of color and by the trans community. There's a huge kind of component, I think. To me, that was one of the issues that was always interesting around gay marriage, which was just, wow, this is this like it's interest. It was really interesting to see not, you know, obviously legal rights are really are really important and civil rights are really important. Mm -hmm. But just what are the kinds of issues that the whole community can really rally around and where power is shown and, and felt and where we get laws and sort of where we where we don't. I think there's a great kind of creativity that can be attributed to any community, any specific community. It has its own different quality and aesthetic. And I never want to be too too essentialist about it, but I think that's what has been really interesting. But one of the organizations that I work with right now is I'm on the board of directors of Out in Tech. And one of the okay. things that we really focus on is kind of bringing together the LGBTQ tech community. And part of that is, you know, again, what we were talking about earlier is creating those spaces for people to network and to make friends and to get to know one another. But also, you know, we're one of the few organizations that isn't focusing on a specialized group and really trying to sort of think about like as a full community, what do we want to push for in tech? And is it is this just about representation? You know, are there larger issues to be thinking about? And particularly as the organization scales and begins to have small groups and networks in different cities, we're starting, you know, you're starting to see that each city has sort of a different approach. Some of them are more, more focused on on sort of social gatherings, other maybe more focused on some of our more sort of socially oriented work. Some are also thinking more about mentorship and and working with youth for our, you know, through our out in tech you kind of initiative. So it's been it's been interesting for me. I mean one of the reasons why I felt so, you know, it felt really important for me to give time to this organization. You know, was specifically because it was after working at a great place like Girls Who Code, I really felt like, yeah, I'm seeing the importance of having focused support and conversations about what the needs are of a particular community. So it's been really interesting to work with this group with Out in Tech. You know, for the past, you know, it's been a little bit over over a year now. Mm-hmm. I reached out to them, I think, a while back when I first started doing, actually, this sort of LGBTQ month. They were one of the first organizations I reached out to because I was like, 
I need to try to find, you know, LGBTQ people in tech and design who would be interested in, you know, kind of helping to come on the show. And I've seen how it's grown over the years now. I think they're in like two or three cities now because they were just in New York, I think is where they started. Yeah, it's it's probably more like 10. Oh, wow. Oh, we'll see. Look at that. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice. I mean, we have have over 20,000 members across multiple cities. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's growing. And I think what's been really interesting is you know, because I'm so fascinated with how organizations grow, is to see that it's an organization that has, you know, it has a social component, it has a give back to the community component, it has a networking component. And we're seeing that all of those arms, you know, mentoring a younger group, using our tech skills to help other people, and then just networking and getting to know one another and sort of feeling known and accepted, that those are three really important and different functions that the organization has, and I think will continue to have. Do you feel like the, the tech, I guess, community or environment, do you feel like it has gotten better for LGBTQ people as, as more talk happens about diversity and inclusion with workplaces and with companies? Do you feel like the, the whole environment's gotten better? The biggest issue is really about counting and representation and the inclusion piece. So, you know, the diverse, you may have the numbers. Right now, we've only, you know, been able to kind of call people on the numbers, right? Having people be public about who they've hired and who are on their teams, particularly who are on their tech teams, who are on their design teams, and not and who's not in administration or marketing. You know, for me as a person with a tech background, that's really important too, that we're looking across the company and saying, oh, okay, I, I see your numbers. You got to start somewhere. Who are those people and where do they work? And what kind of opportunities are there for them and as you see to get into that inclusion piece? How long do they stay? And how are they doing? And are they okay there? And, you know, have they been mentored or sponsored or have they moved out of their positions? And that's increasingly what I'm really interested in and beginning to focus on professionally because it is such a key kind of moment. And we can, you can get people, you know, into a space and we can push those doors open. But um, if it is toxic and terrible when someone gets there, no one will stay. Yeah. You know, we all know it. We all know it, that there's more language and some accountability right now is important. But I think we also want to make sure that particularly as the larger political landscape changes and in many ways becomes that a dialogue about being inclusive becomes less widespread, we make sure that we really continue to hold people accountable Mm -hmm. and get a sense of what people are doing inside their companies. So that's been interesting for me in terms of the work with Out in Tech is that a lot of the work that we might do might be with an employee resource group or they're with queers within a particular company who have dollars, who have a desire to do something and want to bring in interns or want to, you know, host an event or do something like that. And I think that's a un- kind of a unique type of agency that tech companies particularly have. That to me is not something that I've seen in other in other spheres is sort of that desire to keep to keep people happy and to, yeah. and to feed them and keep them there and to give them, you know, funds to socialize with. Like there's a way that I think tech in some ways focuses on individual happiness that with some savvy take advantage of and use to our own ends. Yeah. Now that you're on the sabbatical, I'm sure you've had time to really kind of think about, you know, what the next steps are or, 
or any other sort of projects or things that you want to do. Do you have a dream project that you'd love to accomplish one day? Oh, that's so interesting. Right now, I don't have a big dream project. I usually have to empty my head and I'm still emptying before the new stuff comes in. But that's a great question. I feel like I should have a big dream project. Well, you've got time. How long is your sabbatical? <laughs> I have a few more months. Oh, oh, psh, you got time. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've got time. <laughs> is there anything that you're like, really excited about at the moment? I'm excited about a lot of the art and design that I've been seeing. It's been just great to, after being super busy and not having any time to look at anything, mm-hmm. it's been terrific just to get out into the world and out into New York City and just see what's out there and see what people are doing. It feels like it's been a while. And in New York, you can fall into a sort of lethargy where you're not going out and seeing what people are up to. And so this actually has been has been one of the kind of best things is just getting to, you know, MoMA and the Whitney and getting to shows and small galleries and seeing artists that I'm not aware of and getting caught up with with friends and doing studio visits and just sort of getting a sense of what people are doing out in the world has been really great. Is there anything that scares you creatively? I always find this moment of not knowing what to do next to be a scary moment when I know something will click and something will happen, but trying to figure out what that will be and trying to just be open and kind of zen about it instead of anxious about it is always the kind of scariest part for me. But then when something kind of clicks, then that also feels really good because you have been so kind of anxious and scared. Yeah, the not knowing is is the scary part for me. Whereas for my dad, he loves it. (laughs) he's like oh that's a good part yeah yeah that's when it's real fun and i'm like we're very different we're very different (laughs) what is it that keeps you motivated and inspired to continue with this work i get a lot of inspiration and motivation from working with other people and seeing what else you know what kinds of things people have designed and brought into the world so Certainly, my work with nonprofits, I think, has had a lot to do with wanting to have, you know, knowing the art world in the way that I do and wanting to kind of feel a a part of something larger, which is what I love about education is just, you know, by working with organizations that are giving people more tech skills. You have this really kind of optimistic, cool feeling, which is just like Mm -hmm. that, that there are a lot of really interesting, terrific people out there and kids that are that, you know, you can give these opportunities to and it will really, you know, even if they don't study CS or do anything having to do with computers or tech, like just those kind of moments of creativity, of acceptance, of exploration, like those to me are the most inspiring, most inspiring things. So, you know, whether it was, you know, just sitting in on the out in tech mentorship talks and like hearing young people just talk about how important it was for them to like meet with another queer professional every week and, and the kind of inspiration and self-confidence that it, it gave them. Like those are the kind of moments that I really kind of cling to because it really, it provides that kind of human connection that you almost, you don't always have when you're like looking at the command line or designing, you know, all day. So those it's, I find that it's those human kind of moments that are, that are really cool. 
what advice would you give to someone that wants to kind of follow in your footsteps and do the kind of work that you're doing? I mean, to me, the portfolio is always really important, being able to really clearly talk about what you've done on a project, what you've learned, and kind of to have something to show for it is really important. And the diversity of the portfolio, I think, is also really key. And just to know what you're interested in, to know what excites you, what type of work is going to feel more like play and less like work, because that means you're going to do it longer. And to you know, think less about kind of innovation as a profession, because I don't, I think it's only, you know, it's a buzzword and it's certainly not like it, it won't be around. I think I feel like it's almost, it's pretty tired right now and it won't be around for much longer, but to really just have a clear sense of what interests you and to stay curious and to stay really, really kind of deeply informed, you know, mm-hmm. unfortunately, unconscious and conscious bias and the systemic biases that are out there are really phenomenal. And people will look at people like us and think and be like, oh, you're into this or you're into that or you know about X, Y, or Z. They don't expect it even to this day. And so I think to really know your stuff and to be interested in what you're interested in and to be able to have a wide range of things to pull from so that you can shove that door open and keep your foot in the door once you get it open is really, is really important. Where do you kind of see yourself in the next five years? I know that might be a question you don't like to answer because we just talked about kind of not knowing about the the future, but if you kind of look into the future, just, you know, from where you're at right now, what sort of work would you want to be doing? I've had this exercise before of trying to come up with a five-year plan. It's very hard for me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) A few executive coaches have tried before you, just so you know, (laughs) to be like, where do you you see yourself in five years? I mean, to me, it's it's about finding balance, right? Between working on these really cool, ambitious projects with other people and then working on my own creative projects you know, that often involve other people as well. But finding that balance so that you're doing a little bit of both is always my goal. You know, whether to work on good teams with other smart people is always like, that's my happy place. I really, really love solving problems with other people. And, you know, I've worked on, I've been really lucky to work on some great projects and I see more great projects out there. So my, my dream is always just to find more projects and to continue to have the time and energy and space to work on some of those, you know, to work on some on personal projects as well, or to maybe begin to see them coming together more. There's less separation between those spaces. That might be interesting. That might be something I could look for in the future. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, Leah, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Yeah, it's a tricky question right now. The obvious thing would be a website, which I don't have, but we are beefing up the Wikipedia entry and doing some projects to beef up the Wikipedia and create the Wikipedia entries of queer designers. So um, I hope for just to make a plug for Creative Commons and the kinds of things that are, you know, Wikimedia and the things that are, are easily accessible to people. That's one thing that I'm particularly looking at. And you can always uh, follow and keep track of Out in Tech because that's my nonprofit of of choice right now and where I'm putting a lot of time and energy. So that's another great way to kind of see uh, where some of my strategic thinking is going at the moment. 
All right, that sounds good. Well, Leah Gilliam, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, you know, for, of course, sharing your story and sharing, you know, the work that you're doing. Like you said, you know, I think that visibility is really important, really for designers in general, but because we're doing this, you know, during LGBTQ month, certainly it's much more important, I think, for that community. Because as you've said, there's been ways in the past where that history has been whitewashed or not mentioned at all or anything like that. So the fact that we really have the tools and the the spaces now to kind of put that stuff out there, there's more opportunities for visibility and for recognition and hopefully for, for equity, you know? Yeah, definitely. I'm really happy to talk about this. And, and just a quick Wikipedia search brought up many, many, many white men, male fashion designers. I, probably cis white male fashion designers if I were to make a really quick judgment. So I thought that was really interesting too, is that just the blanket area of design kind of points to, uh, queer design points to fashion first, as opposed to visual design or architecture or innovation or something like that. So there's still quite a lot of work to be done. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk a bit about it with you. Thoughts of love are in. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Leah Gilliam and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Leah and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Did you know that people spend over 3 billion minutes daily on Facebook? With an audience of over 2 billion users, that's really impressive. People use Facebook to share and connect with the people they care about, and their experience is the core of the Facebook design team. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. If you're new to Glitch, just pop on over to the homepage and explore some of the featured projects or categories to try it out. It's like a familiar app store, but almost everything is created by regular people like you. I'm talking students just learning how to code, to even some of the best programmers at the biggest tech companies use Glitch, and they're ready to help each other out if they get stuck. Ready to get started? Then visit Glitch.com today. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music May Andre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. Um, it also helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for Design Podcast. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.